Welcome to Breakout Startups, a podcast about the most prominent entrepreneurs and investors building the companies that transform our lives. My name is Tomer Federman. I'm an entrepreneur and an angel investor in early stage enterprise and fintech startups. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech and previously was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on the Breakout Startups podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of Breakout Startups, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Excited to welcome to the show today, Stephanie Dua, the co-founder and president of Homer. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks so much, Tamar. It's great to be with you today. So Stephanie, to kick things off, what is Homer? So Homer is uh, an early learning company focused on providing the best start possible for kids ages zero to eight. Um, we have three different products. So we have a digital product really focused on early literacy and numeracy and social emotional learning. It's called Homer Learn and Grow. And we also have recently launched some physical products, uh, really companions to our digital learning program. And uh, we also have classes. So we like to think of ourselves as providing the entire solution for families with young children who are looking for really trustworthy learning products for their kids. And the age is what, like two to eight, right? Yeah, it is two to eight. Yeah, we do have some younger children. We have a great collaboration with Fisher Price, where we have some content uh, for younger children as well. Got it. And what inspired you to start the uh, Homer? Well, the bottom line is parents are really overwhelmed, you know, and Homer was founded on the belief that it's hard to be a parent and a teacher. And it's, you know, obviously harder now than ever with COVID. And I was the CEO of the Fund for Public Schools in New York City. I was really, um, I worked through three terms of Mike Bloomberg working at the heart of the biggest reform efforts in history of education with three kids. Um, and my five-year-old came to me and said, mommy, can you help me read? And honestly, Tamar, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, as a working mom, <laughs> I was tired. I had three kids. My husband had a big job as well. You know, we had no time, no energy. And like most parents, I had never taught anyone to read before, but I had access to some of the foremost experts in literacy in the country. So I started asking them, I said, you know, what should I be using with my daughter? And I said, you know, I only want to use something that's going to be worth her time, what actually works, what's the best resource out there for busy parents who aren't teachers themselves, you know, and they all said the same thing. They said that there wasn't anything. There was certainly nothing that they trusted, something that really was built around quality education. They said there's a lot of edutainment and entertainment out there, um, but nothing that they would trust with their own families. And so that was really the, the impetus for me to create Homer. You know, at the time I knew because of my work in the New York City public schools that there was a huge gap in trusted resources for parents. And I thought, you know, how can you bring the best of what you get in a school environment with efficacy with something really engaging for children? And that was the beginning. 
What I like about it is I think many parents can relate to, on the one hand, not necessarily being teachers themselves, but then on the other hand, many parents really are probably their child's first teacher. That's right. And there's actually a lot of um, great research published on how um, a parent is the first and really the most important teacher for a child. But when polled, parents are either kind of terrified by that concept or they're very motivated or some combination between the two, right? You know, like that feels like a lot of pressure for most parents when they know how important it is. And I like to say, you know, it's all about building a great foundation for your children, you know, and I think we can all time or think back to our own childhood and think about our own learning experiences and what were some positives and what were some challenging experiences, you know, and, you know, how the question is how, how do we build a strong foundation for our children? You know, how do we build a foundation such that they have confidence and resiliency and endurance when things get challenging or they face something they don't know? You know, and, you know, we all have examples of times where, you know, we've had a weak foundation, right? And, you know, and you have self-doubt. And for many kids, when they don't, even in starting as early as kindergarten, you know, they can start to opt out. They can consider themselves not a good reader or not good at math. And so then they start to kind of create that own narrative in their mind and they start to opt out of um, those subjects. And that's, that's very hard for many families and children to recover from. And it's even harder in a time like COVID. Absolutely. It sounds like you're very passionate about education mm. and how important that is. It does sound like a major change to move from, you talked about your background running the Fund for Public Schools, so moving from, you know, running an, a nonprofit to becoming an entrepreneur and, mm. you know, building a VC-backed company. Yeah. I know some would say it's crazy, <laughs> but maybe we all, all need a little bit of craziness to do these things. You know, it's interesting. I had a great conversation um, when I was in graduate school. I had the benefit of being a Kennedy fellow and going to the Kennedy School uh, for graduate school. And Dean Nye, Joe Nye was the dean at the time. And, you know, I he pulled me aside and he said, Stephanie, you know, you're one of our Kennedy fellows, you know, we've really looked after you, you know, and, you know, how are you thinking about your own future and how you want to give back to public service in some way? And I said, that's a great question. I'm, I chose to go to McKinsey and company and start in consulting straight after um, the Kennedy school. And that was not a typical path at the time. You know, most, most of my colleagues um, from the Kennedy school went straight into public service. But I, I said to D9 at the time, I said, I always had viewed my life as being richer and better and a better leader. If I could move between sectors, if I could move between the, the for-profit sector into the mm. NGO, into the, the venture backed, um, sector, you know, I, I felt like I bring a very different skill set as a leader when I move between those sectors. And even when I was starting Homer, I didn't start Homer to start a tech company, you know, and in fact, I was the most atypical, you know, co-founder to begin with. I, you know, was a, a woman, I was a mom to three young kids and I had never started a company before. Right. And I had previously been working in public service, working really in, in politics. And I remember so many VCs looked at me and they were like, why should I invest in you? You know, and I just kept, I kept going, you know, and I, I had a few people who really backed me as a person who backed the idea. And that was enough then to get to, you know, the growth, to get the business, to hire the people. And then it, you know, it, it, you know, it all came together, but 
you know, my advice to anyone in that same situation is, you know, don't doubt yourself, you know, continue and persist, you know, have your passion and start, start the company and be the the leader that you want to build instead of, you know, what other people think you ought to do. Yeah. I actually see that successful entrepreneurs are the ones who have just deep conviction in their ideas. And oftentimes they actually also have a greater goal beyond just building something big or to your point, building a tech company. So that's, I think something that many folks can relate to. Your audience is children, right? Age two to eight. Obviously, they can purchase decisions. So how do you bridge that gap? How do you appeal to parents, but then build something for their kids? Yeah, I mean, it's something we talk about every day because we have a consumer and a user, right? And so you have to make both of them happy. And sometimes they're at odds with each other, you know? So I think what you find with a lot of companies that are more on the entertainment or edutainment side, it's not enough for parents to want to subscribe for a long period of time because it doesn't have the same, you know, intellectual learning academic value, you know? But if it's something that feels too much like school for kids, where they're not really developing a deep intrinsic, you know, motivation to learn, then the children aren't going to want to do it. And most parents, again, like myself, you know, you're tired, you don't want to have to fight with your kids to do something that you think is good for them, right? And so you have to kind of find that 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 Venn diagram, that piece in the middle where you are building true learning value that parents see and know, um, and kids are really motivated to use the product. So the way we approach that is through our learning design. So we have, we invest a lot of money and time in um, designing content that kids find intrinsically motivating. And the reason that's important is you'll find out there, and if you have kids, you'll find out there that there's a lot of um, content and experiences for children that rely on kind of quick rewards, you know, the typical gamification, right? You do one thing and you get something in exchange. Well, most educators will tell you that that is not good for kids. So if we come back to that principle of how do you build a strong foundation for your children, um, relying on kind of extrinsic quick rewards does not help them in the in in the long run you know they really have to build an internal drive and internal love of learning and so we use our research and design teams to build content that is intrinsically motivating for children because in children inherently love learning when presented properly that is also a value to parents so it's that kind of that's that that secret sauce in the middle we like to say why is that short-term rewards approach not something that many experts recommend? Is is that because it creates some sort of addiction or what's what's behind that? Yeah, because it, it's about sort of the the children are creating and completing the task just to complete the task, right? So there are gonna be a lot of things they're confronted with in life that you know, they're not going to get a quick reward for, right? And so how do they learn that learning is valuable? for an intrinsic, um, you know, how do they intrinsically understand that when confronted with something challenging, if, 
if they're not given, you know, a quick carrot, you know, it's okay to continue to persevere. So most educational psychologists of which we have many PhDs on our staff would say the, the best way to build kids who truly love learning, right? So that's the ultimate goal. That's the highest order goal for all parents is that they want their kids to want to learn, to love to learn, is that you have to do it through intrinsic motivation. You have to have kids develop that sense that they want to they want to learn the next thing and that it's based on things that are of interest to them and that they can accomplish it. Hmm, interesting. You've also been talking about creating a systematic experience in learning. Is that what you were referring to? No, no. And that's definitely what we're referring to. So we're, we're really looking to build an entire program. You know, one of the things that I knew both from my time working in the New York City schools, you know, where we would talk to so many families. And, you know, the first question was always, you know, what can I do with my kids? Even, honestly, Tamara, when I was raising funds, I would say most conversations said, oh, well, that's a really interesting idea. Now, here's my son. He's five. He kind of doesn't love math, you know, and we went into these very personal experiences where everyone was like, (laughs) you know, what should I do, right? What should I be doing? You know, every parent, again, most parents aren't teachers and we know that it's, you know, a really important role to play, but we don't really know where to go. So, you know, we're really looking to simplify things for parents. There are so many options. It's overwhelming, right? And so how do we really keep it simple for families? How do we help them understand what's of value and of quality for their child and what's not? You know, and how, you know, how do we help them think about, you know, I what I like to say often I give the example where there are some skills like there's a skill called gross motor skills, which is really just, you know, how you can manipulate a child can manipulate larger objects, blocks, for example. Well, you can't do that in an app, right? But you can do that with blocks with great manipulatives. And so we want to be there for the family. We've mapped out all of the core skills a child needs to learn. And then what our job is, we believe, is to help families find the simplest, easiest way to teach those. So sometimes that's digitally. Sometimes that's physically, and sometimes that's through just co-play, you know, and and conversations parents can have. And sometimes that might be a class um, that a that a parent and a child can enjoy together. So we like to think of it taking it from a skill standpoint first, and then finding the best way to teach those skills and really demystifying that for families. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about so one of the things I know many parents are concerned about is purely the amount of time that their kids spend, you know, staring at a screen. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the screen fatigue, you know, existed before COVID, you know, and I think it's, you know, it's at a different level, you know, particularly with kids, you know, on Zooms. And, you know, frankly, the kids who are struggling the most are the youngest children, right? And so it's very hard for a two or a three-year-old to engage properly, you know, on on a digital device, you know, in a, in a Zoom setting. Um I think it all comes down to quality. So what we like to say, and this was even pre-COVID, is that, you know, it it's all about the, the kind of content that the child is engaging with. And so if you really take that as a first principle, one is, you know, really understanding who is creating the content, what is the purpose of the content, and how are children interacting with it, and asking those very simple questions, I think is a first step. The second step I like to always give parents advice to is there are great resources out there. Common Sense Media is one of my favorites, you know, that has, um, a, you know, a vast library of reviews um, that they've done themselves and that parents have done 
about the different products and which ones, you know, are of high quality and which ones are, are not as high a quality. And then lastly, I think it's everything in moderation. We like to say, you know, that it's kind of 15 minutes a day for our, our digital products. You know, now we actually have higher engagement time, you know, than 15 minutes a day, but, you know, we, we certainly, the way it works best, you know, for us in terms of a learning um, journey is kids spending smaller doses more frequently of time. And we think that that's, that's great for them. And then we encourage families to um, get off the screen and play. We have three different activity kits that we just launched, one around reading, one around math, one around social emotional learning, you know, and that kind of play, that free play is so important for children and their development. Yeah. Is that something that you also hear more from your customers that they want to... So, I mean, you talked about how you now also have physical toys. Is that something that you hear more and more from parents, you know, given now the situation with the pandemic, that they want their kids to also go outdoors more and spend some time at the park, right? As opposed to just you know, that skin fatigue that you talked about? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can even say just personally, you know, it's, you know, it's, I have three children, you know, and we're constantly trying to figure out ways in which they can safely get outside and play and get fresh air and move their bodies. Um, it's, it's, it's important and it's important to think about ways to do that. Um, you know, safely. The other piece that we're hearing more and more parents talk about is just general anxiety amongst children, you know, and the social emotional learning. So we like to think that there are are many different impacts from COVID. One is a learning impact, you know, and there are other impacts as well, you know, social impact, the emotional impact on children, as well as the physical impact. And these are all crises, you know, in of themselves. And it's important for us to understand for a child, they don't separate all of those. For a young child in particular, a four or five-year-old, a three-year-old, you know, there are are multiple things that are um, in a time of COVID that that are um, that are true crises, and so we like to think at Homer we are focusing squarely on the learning, but we're moving more and more into providing resources for families around the social emotional um, as well as the physical. So one stat that I saw Stephanie that I thought was really interesting was about you know eighty five percent of a child's brain actually develops before the age of five. Yeah, the vast majority, I think like 98% of education spending in the U.S. is targeted for kids after the age of five. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think it's partly an anachronistic view, right, where we had this, this mental framework that we could drop our kids off at school starting in kindergarten and the learning began and ended there in that school day. You know, and what we've learned over time is that you know, one is that there's, you know, we, we personally like to partner with uh, teachers at Homer, but it's a very, very challenging job. Some, you know, teachers in kindergarten have up to five year difference in reading level in those, the classroom, you know, some kids don't know their letters and some kids are reading chapter books. Um, And so I think what you're saying, you know, more and more is an understanding from parents and an understanding from researchers that you have to start early. Um, and you have to start at home, you know, because parents, as we know, are the first and most important teachers. So then the question becomes, how do we best serve families, you know, in that role? And how do we serve um, families 
you know, that are, um, you know, across different socioeconomic ranges, you know, and that was one of the, one of the things that excited me the most about creating a digital product. What we saw in New York City is we made great improvements. You know, we raised over $300 million for some of the biggest reform efforts in New York City to change outcomes for kids. But what we saw is that while we had great improvements within New York City, it was harder to scale some of those improvements to different cities. And so what I was really curious about is, could you take some great technology? This was the first year the iPad came out. And could you build something that simulated what is what it would be like to have a great teacher, a great pre-K, a great kindergarten teacher available for families irrespective of zip code. So I think that's where the great promise is. You know, we're, we're a ways away from meeting that promise as we know that COVID has even brought in light more to the, not it's not just an educational gap, it's an educational gulf. Um, but we're really excited about that, that big vision of how do we serve kids best irrespective of zip code. And how did the pandemic impact your business? Um, you know, the pandemic, you know, we're seeing, um, you know, unprecedented engagement and growth, you know, from a subscription basis alone, we saw 300% growth um, over the past nine months. Um, and, you know, overall, as a business, you know, we're or 80% year over year in growth. So, and then also just from an engagement, the number of session time per week and the number of hours um, per week has gone up dramatically as parents are using Homer more as a direct teaching tool. Going back to those early days, Stephanie, when you just started the company, how did you get the word out? How did you get that initial distribution in place, which I think so many entrepreneurs find challenging and and obviously mm-hmm. you know the education space is is crowded there's there are many competitors out there obviously you've been really successful in getting customers and getting the business off the ground and we'll talk soon about you know where are you now but i'm just curious in these early days how did you get started how did you acquire your first set of customers? It's a great question. So I have a funny story to tell. I'm not sure Eddie Q would like this story, but <laughs> please do. Uh, I don't know that I've ever told this story publicly before. <laughs> you're my first year. Um, so we um, early days had a great um, partnership with Apple. This was very very early days. You know, in the kids section, um, we're kid. The wow, how did you get a get a meeting with Eddie Q. Yeah, how do you get a meeting? How do you get a partnership with Apple when you're so early? I mean, yeah. even I mean, much yeah. later. We had great friends. You know, we, because of my time in the New York City schools, working with um, Mike Bloomberg and, and all that great talent, uh, Joel Klein, we also, you know, had great partners and friends at Sesame and other places. So it was a pretty small world believe it or not, of people working on the kind of these big education issues. And so one connection led to another. And we um, were fortunate enough to, to have Eddie Q called. And he's like, yeah, I'm sitting on my couch. I'm playing with the app you know, why don't you come over? Okay. Coming over. We were in New York. He's in San Francisco. Um, and why don't we talk? So we flew out there and, um, had a great meeting. But one of the things he said was, he said, look, you, you can't have a subscription. He's like, it'll never work subscriptions never work with digital. <laughs> and, and I said, look, I think you're really smart. And obviously you 
very accomplished, but we want to do a subscription. He's like, it's the death of the business. You cannot do a subscription. (laughs) He said, it has to be in-app purchases. And I was like, well, who's going to authorize in-app purchases when you have a three-year-old and a parent? You know, that's going to be totally annoying. You know, no parent wants their kids, you know, purchasing an app. It's, you know, that's scary for parents. Um, and so we went back and forth and went, and so I said, fine, okay, we will do it like pay as you go for the first three months, but then I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to say, I want a subscription and I want you to, cause subscriptions were only allowed in newsstand at the time. And so I said, I want you to give me an exemption and I'll work with your team to create the first subscription in, you know, outside of newsstand. And so we worked with, he was great and his team was great. And Ty, they were all amazing to work with, but we were kind of one of the early guinea pigs in creating a subscription um, product in iTunes. Um, And so in the app store. And so, you know, we were in a great position, I think, from a revenue standpoint, pretty early on, we, you know, from my experience at McKinsey, working with B2C companies, I understood the power of subscription businesses. But the the key decision we made early on um, was that we focused a lot on earned. You know, we, um, it's expensive to acquire customers, as you know. And so we didn't want to go down a paid media route early on, a paid acquisition route early on. We really um, focused on how do we generate as much press as possible. And so one of the ways we did that um, was that we worked with um, we worked with researchers to do efficacy and to do really groundbreaking efficacy. And we used that research to, to generate press. So we got some great press early on around Canon iPad solved the literacy crisis, you know, and working then with reporters to continue that coverage and that story. So we also did that, frankly, because, you know, we were concerned that there was a lot of this edutainment out there, you know, and it was really hard for a parent to understand the difference between, you know, what I like to call junk food learning and real learning. You know, it's not, again, unless you're a teacher, it's kind of not obvious to know the difference between that because many people make claims. And so that's also why why we wanted to really um, go hard at independent research um, on the product, much like what a school a school system would do. Interesting. So that focus on research allowed you to gain some credibility among parents to then make them feel more comfortable that this is not that junk food exactly. entertainment. Exactly. Exactly. And that just allowed enough of a hook for us to to get the earned media to grow the business, you know. Um, and then obviously, you know, we have an incredible marketing team now where we, you know, focus on earned, owned, and paid. Um, but, you know, early days, we wanted to try and build a brand and we wanted to try and build a lot of loyalty amongst parents to get word of mouth. And, you know, and that's really what we focused on was earned and then word of mouth growth. Got it. And then when did you, I assume at some point you started spending more also on paid marketing? Yes, that's right. So, yeah. So that happened later. Sounds that like happened that later. happened. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, truthfully, you had to, you have to get your word of mouth growth. You have to figure out how to get word of mouth growth. You can't just use paid. You know, I was at McKinsey during the big dot com boom and bust. 
in the 90s and you saw a lot of companies, you know, burn out because they just burned through too much cash, right? You know, and they didn't have, you know, great unit economics. And so we were really concerned with how do we build a business that has great unit economics that really is building products that people want to talk about, you know, and that comes back to your question around the, the, the parent child, right? The consumer user. So you have to, you have to build in experiences for parents, um, even if they're not using the product. And so there's an art to how you build that feedback loop, you know, from child to parents so that parents understand the value and then want to talk about it amongst their friends. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, probably one of the mistakes I see most often entrepreneurs making is they start spending big, right? So they raise um, some funding from VCs and then they do actually go that paid marketing route that you talked about. Mm-hmm. And they spend significant amounts of capital on, you know, going their user base. But guess what? Sometimes actually the product market fit isn't that great yet, right? They're exactly. still early in terms of the product offering. Exactly. And so they're exactly. spending like so- a large amounts of, so sounds like you've been really thoughtful about that. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing's easy, as you know. I mean, I it, I make it maybe sound easier than it is, right? Because at, at each point, you're sort of second guessing <laughs> yourself, right? And you're like, you know, should I have done this? Should I have done that? Right? And in hindsight, it's right. funny. Um, but I did get great advice early on from you know a number of uh, you know investors and other advisors, and you know everyone had really pushed me hard to say, look, get the product market fit, make sure your unit economics look really good, that you understand how the dynamics work before you, you know, put too much money, you know, into paid acquisition. Yeah. And uh, this is actually a great segue because speaking about investors, I know recently you announced $50 million, right? Your Series C round of financing. And you had some pretty big names there um, backing you, right? Like Jim Bory and Sesame Workshop and Lego Ventures. I actually have several questions on that. Sure. I guess similar to that Apple question, how do you get such well-established, well-known brands to back what you're doing? How did you go about yeah. you know, getting them on board? Well, a little bit of it comes... But first, I need to give a lot of credit to my other two co-founders, Neil Chenoy and, and Noel Milholt, you know, who you know have worked tirelessly with um, on these relationships. Um, and I would say that it's really important, you know, those early decisions we made to focus on quality, to focus on efficacy, to focus, frankly, on building a stronger product allowed us to be in the room with the people who had the bigger names and brands because they were all searching, you know, for they, many of them knew that it would be challenging for them to build, you know, digital on their own. Um, And, you know, and many of them, you know, weren't necessarily educational companies, right? So they understood that we brought something to the table and that we were combining this great digital experience with, you know, real learning value. Um, And so it was really just those early relationships. Um, Neil had some great relationships with um, Fisher-Price, Noel with Jamboree. I had great relationships with Sesame, you know, and then we later, um, you know, formed some great relationships through investors and our board with Lego. And what you start to realize, you know, what I like to say is we have more than 250 years of combined experience in teaching children to love learning. Uh, And it's these partners, you know, and, you know, it's, um, it's been an incredible, um, incredible 
benefit to us. And I think we like to think we bought a lot um, to our partners as well. Yeah. And how did you think about, like, how important was it for you to have VCs or uh, backers that come from the educational space and know it really well, as opposed to, I guess, the more general VC funds? Like, how did you think about that? Such a great question. I mean, I'd like to say, you know, we had all our choices in the world, but, you know, we early on... Struggled, you know, but no, early on, we, you know, we struggled with a little bit of, are we ed tech or are we consumer, right? Because they have two mm. very different bases, sources of funding. Yeah. Um, and so the ed tech investors early on wanted products that served institutions, schools, right? And then traditional VCs that are consumer, most of them at the time, um, you know, education was not one of their verticals that they had a lot of experience in. So we were, we were very lucky that we found some great um, early stage um, VCs, Rethink, um, Great Oaks, um, and, and a number of really um, wonderful um, independent angel investors that very early days supported us. Um, and so Sherry Redstone and others on the media side and then you know on the education side as well. So we have from the beginning said that there's a space to be both. There's a space to create great educational value for families. And so we've always kind of towed that line, you know, and, and certainly now at this point, I think people, and certainly with COVID people are kind of understanding that there's, you know, there are great businesses to build in this space and you can build a business that does good and does well. Yeah. And um, by now you've raised over a hundred million dollars, right? Yeah. We've raised about a hundred million. Yep. And we just raised a 50 million series C. Yeah, so obviously you've been very successful in um, getting people bought into your vision and where you want to take the company and how you want to build the company moving forward. For entrepreneurs listening to this who are earlier in the process, Stephanie, and mm. you know, maybe are thinking about their initial round of funding or Series A, any best practices or tips about how to approach this? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I, um, I, I think that some of the lessons I learned um, in the process was to really focus a lot on your story that you're telling, you know, and, and making sure that it's, you know, you practice it and it has resonance and it's as pithy and as short and as clean as possible. I think what ends up happening to many entrepreneurs is you spend so much time on your deck, you spend so much time getting feedback from one, you know, meeting to the next that you can't really build the business, right? And so spending time up front, really thinking about why do you exist? How are you building something that's unique? And why should somebody invest in you and answering a few simple questions um, is critically important. And the second thing is, I think you also have to start building the company. It is so time consuming to fundraise and build a company at the same time, but you really have no choice. And so I what I like to say to everyone is make sure you don't take your eye off what are the core steps that you need to do to build the company as you are raising um, that early stage capital. 
And I'd say the final thing is you can't do it alone. It's very hard to do it alone. And so whether you are, you know, you have co-founders, you know, really invest in those relationships um, and surround yourself with a small group of advisors, you're going to be told every single day what you should and shouldn't do. And it's going to change by the day. You know, everyone's going to give you different advice today than they gave you yesterday. And it's confusing and dizzying and, and it can um, create a lot of um, churn in your own management of the business. So I like to say, just think about the two or three people you want to surround yourself with that will help guide you, you know, and, 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 and keep to that and keep to some patterns, you know, so that you're not, you know, kind of moving back and forth from A to B all the time. Yeah, these are some really great points. So one of the things that sometimes happen is, right, an investor comes in and he or she would have a very strong opinion about the direction that you then, you know, the founding team should pursue. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, I think you told one earlier, right, when mm-hmm. you said you had that really well-respected individual who said subscriptions aren't going to work. But sounds like you had a very strong conviction about where you want to take the business and you just moved forward and didn't really uh, let that take you to a different direction than where you originally were planning to go. Where did you get that, I guess, strength of conviction to say, no, you know what, like, I'm not going to pursue that. And, you know, despite everything you've done before, I think we should pursue a different path. Because sometimes I see, you know, VCs come in, they give this advice. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes they just frankly don't know the space as well as you, right? Right. The spending all your time thinking about that. Any, any thoughts there about, you know, when you should and shouldn't listen to advice as you're going through that pretty grueling oftentimes yeah. process of fundraising? I mean, it comes back, yeah, it's, it's tough. Look, it's, there's not an easy answer. What I can just share is what I did, which is I had some independent individuals that I really trusted around one person around how do you build and monetize businesses, you know, from an early stage to, I had a friend and advisor who was some of the, had some of the best thinking. She later worked with me on how do you build a brand and how do you, how do you have conversations with parents and how do you use that to earn media? And so you just, you, you kind of listen and you, do you think you have to listen for patterns? Cause sometimes if it's the seventh or eighth VC that's told you the same thing, there's maybe a reason, right. And you need to dig into that a little further because we're, it, we all have our blind spots. Um, and, but, but also you need to have that separate group that are not investors. They're not employees. Um, that you can turn to and you can say, hey, listen, I'm hearing this. What do you think? And I've now heard this three or four times. Is this something worth focusing on or not? Um, And we heard that. I heard that early on. That's, for example, the paid acquisition piece. I heard early on not to focus on paid acquisition, um, but rather to focus on partnerships and press and, you know, just really generating organic word of mouth. And I heard that from enough people that I was like, okay, I need to I need to focus on that Um, and, you know, and not focus on building out, you know, a a full paid acquisition team. But, you know, uh, that's my, that's my key advice is, you know, just keep to that small group of advisors that, you know, and trust so that you can keep referring back to them. And that ideally those that are not also investors. Yeah. And and that last round of funding, did you raise that? over the past few months, like yeah. during the pandemic. Exactly. How did you find that? We like, start, I assume yeah. the, like yeah. Zoom meetings or like what's yeah. the, how is that different than, you know, pre-COVID? 
I think it's fine, honestly. I just, <laughs> is, I think yeah. it's great. It's super efficient. You know, um, it's amazing. Yeah, no jumping on a plane to San Francisco. <laughs> Correct. That's right. And Neil Shinoy, my co-founder, has really, you know, we all kind of, Neil Noel and I divide up our responsibilities. And he has done yeoman's work, really leading all of the fundraising. He's extraordinary. Um, you know, and, but yeah, but we all get together and we do it via Zoom. And it's very, very efficient. Also, my sister-in-law is a VC, um, focusing on female founders. And I know I, talking with her, she said it's been really efficient. You know, you can have a lot of conversations, right? And so you can kind of get to know a lot of folks, um, you know, obviously it's nice to meet people in person and, and to form those relationships, but from a purely fundraising standpoint, it's, I think it's been great. Yeah. Do you think we'll go back to, you know, how things were prior to COVID-19 or is this new normal here to stay? You know, and, and I'm not talking even just for fundraising, but just in general, you think about like yeah. the future of work and yeah. people working remotely versus in office. What's What's your take on that? Yeah, I think there are a lot of lasting permanent changes, you know, and I do think that it, you know, it's parenting, right? So we just already talked about, you know, how parents are really for the first time, I do a listening tour with families, um, both men and women, moms, dads, grandparents. Um, and, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up again and again, I'm hearing from families, two things. One is that um, they just had no idea really what kind of learner their child was. And it wasn't until they actually could see their child interacting on Zoom, did they understand um, you know, what their child is, you know, where their child's strong and frankly, where their child's not as strong. And so it's a, it's a new, it's new for them. And so that's, you know, a new reason that they want to try and understand what's available to support their child. But the second thing I've heard from moms in particular is just, um, that they don't want to be commuting in the same way, you know, when you have very, very young children, you know, that go to bed at seven o'clock, you know, and you're not getting home till six thirty, seven, seven thirty. sometimes it's a very, it's, you know, they feel like they're just missing those years. And so, you know, we heard a number of parents, again, moms and dads who are restructuring their lives, you know, traveling less, taking jobs closer to home, taking more flexible work. And so as a company, we've really, prided ourselves early, early, early days, COVID of really, you know, working with our employees to, you know, create flexibility for them because obviously we as parents understood it, you know, firsthand, but we also wanted to create the kind of environment and culture we had, you know, just leased some great office space in Soho right before <laughs> COVID, you know, and so it's beautiful. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, you know, obviously rethinking all of these things, you know, what is, you know, what do our families want to do? You know, how do they get time back for their children? You know, we're, we're a, a business in the business of families, right? And so we have to really honor that, not just for our, our customers, but also our employees. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk recently, right, for instance, about many people leaving, you know, San Francisco and the Bay Area and go live somewhere that's a bit more affordable. Yeah, we made it, my family made a choice early, you know, just pre-COVID. My oldest daughter had a lot of health issues. And so we left New York City after 20 years and moved down to Coconut Grove in Florida. And my husband had a job offer here, you know, and that was radical at the time right yeah it was a big move you know and now we have two of our three co-founders here you know in coconut grove one in new york but you know 
it's so easy to communicate, right? And once travel restrictions ease up a bit, it's so easy to, to get together as well. So I think we're, we're completely rethinking the way, you know, when do we need to be in person? When, when is it enough to, you know, see someone over video? And frankly, when is it enough just to text or chat or use Slack, right? And so how do we think about our family time, our personal time, our work time, you know, in different ways? Yeah, makes sense. Uh, so Stephanie, before we wrap up, uh, curious, other than Homer, any startup or market trend you're particularly excited about or that you're following closely? Yeah, I'm really interested in, um, I'm really interested in, in, in companies like Blue Land. I think they've done a great job rethinking, you know, household chemicals, you know, so that we're creating a more environmentally stable world. You know, I'm, I personally grew up on a farm in really, really, really rural California. So I'm also interested in, you know, just how are we thinking about agri-tech and, you know, and, and different ways of creating sustainable farming, sustainable food and sustainable cleaning. And what's next for you guys, Stephanie? Like what's next on your roadmap? Well, we're hearing more and more from our families that they want this end-to-end solution. We had been testing it before. So we, you know, we'll continue to, to drive that full program experience. So how do we support moms and dads with content for parents? How do we support children digitally with physical toys and also with classes? We're also looking, we've gotten a lot of demand. We have very high lifetime value for families with older children. And so, you know, that's been an interesting, surprising for us market. And so we're really excited about how might we age up and serve the next kind of set of kids, which is really sort of in those ages, eight to 10, 11, 12. And how do we best serve families with, with children of that age? Hmm, interesting. Do you see yourself maybe longer term going even beyond kids and, and catering to the needs of adults as well? Um, that's a great question. I mean, we're certainly um, doing that this year. We've really moving much um, stronger in terms of parent supports, right? And so that's not necessarily parent education or continuing education, but really how do we help parents understand, um, you know, what are all the ways in which they can be their kid's best teacher? And so we're just seeing great engagement from families. We're hearing a lot of families say, you know, there just isn't that one trusted place. We're also hearing a lot of families say that there's just a lot of judgment out there. And so about how to, you know, are they doing the right thing or the wrong thing? And so finding a way to be a safe place without, you know, free of judgment for parents, you know, to learn, you know, what does it look like to be, uh, you know, a parent that's really focusing on their children's learning and how do they do that in simple ways? We're finding a lot of great, great, exciting engagement from our families. So Stephanie, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was so much fun. Thank you brought up some really excellent points so uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and appreciate your Likewise. time thank you thank you so much for having me today thanks for listening if you like this episode of breakout startups I'd really appreciate it if you can rate review and subscribe to the podcast this only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out